Well, hello and welcome to an All Saints Conversation. I'm Connie Willems. I'm Brock Bingaman. And Brock, we have this really interesting thing we get to talk about today. One of your favorite people. Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila. Before we do this, though, welcome back. Thank from you. From Israel. Just got back. My mind is still full of the amazing wonder of being driving down a highway and seeing signs that say Jerusalem that way or Bethlehem that way. Yes. Or Nazareth. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, welcome back to Thanks. Oklahoma. Fun Thanks. stories. Yeah. Fun stories. So we're going to go to a different country today. Mm. We're going to go to Spain and... Yes not quite far back as biblical times in Israel, but we're going to pick up Teresa of Avila's life. Yes. And fascinating woman. Mm -hmm. So she lived in Avila, Spain. I've already disclosed that part. I don't like it's a great mystery. Yeah. But tell us about, well, first of all, um, her dates. Let me just, I had to open my book because I just went blank. 1515 to 1582. So she's born in 1515, yep, 1582. Yep. Can you do fast math to know how old she was when she, when she died? Is it 67? Okay. Something like that. Yeah. 67. I guess we should probably start off with why Teresa? Why are we talking about her? Why Teresa? We're sitting in my office. There's some books in here and Connie called them a posse. Mm. And so th these are my posse, these books, the authors of these books, and she would be one of the outstanding people in that posse. I just, there's something about her writing, what she's taught me, what I've learned from her over the past 25 years. She's just one of the outstanding sisters in Jesus that I've learned much from. Okay, so we're going to dive in and find out about her. Yeah. She, we're going back 500 years. Mm -hmm. We're going back to Spain. She's mm -hmm. a young girl. Mm -hmm. Tell us about her early life there. I will say this. There are specialists in Teresa, historians and all. I know just enough about mm -hmm. her. I know a little bit about her biography would teach some about her in classes, but we'd mainly just focus on the writings. But I know a little bit. Um, her grandfather converted from Judaism, maybe her great grandfather converted from Judaism to Christianity, and she was living in the time of the Spanish Inquisition. So there was great pressure on non Catholics, and her part of her family was non-Catholic. And so that was part of her, her heritage. And it was basically convert or die. Convert or die. And we don't know really the inner motives right. other than living, but there may have been genuine conversion right. there to Jesus. But nonetheless, she ends up as the, the granddaughter, the great-granddaughter, and had uh, a hunger for, for Christ. And then her her mother was a devout Christian. Mm. Her mother died when Teresa was a teenager. And then her life was filled with, with pain, physical pain and suffering. And she had illness. So a lot, of, a lot of suffering early on for her. And of course, if we're talking about the 1500s in Spain, we're in the Catholic Church. Yes, that's right. The Protestant Reformation is beginning to brew, mm -hmm. but not in Spain at this time, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's going on in Germany. And we'll see in a little bit that the Holy Spirit is doing something mm. in 
the Protestant Reformation, Luther and Calvin, the Holy Spirit is doing something to reform the Catholic Church, and Teresa's part of that. She's part of the Catholic Reformation. So how did she end up kind of going from being a teenager with a life of pain into this more devoted place? She ended up being educated intellectually, spiritually, formed uh, by Augustinian uh, nuns. Hmm. So she grew up in an Augustinian convent being taught by these nuns and they were giving her things to read and she began to have a hunger and a thirst for spiritual things at a young age. And she actually entered the convent herself, right? Yes, that's right, as a teenager. What was she like in those early years of the convent? Do you have a sense of that? I have enough of a sense that she was, from her life and from what other people have written on her who were her contemporaries and then scholars now, she's full of life, very Mm. energetic, very passionate. You and I were talking about she... Before she gave herself fully to the spiritual life, she loved to read uh, novels, romance novels. Yeah. So there was something. She was a romantic yeah. deep down. She had a love for life and a love for love. And felt very intensely. Yes. Yeah. Intensely and deeply. And yeah. So she looked back on that with some embarrassment later on. But I think it just said, you know, from a young age, she had this kind of embryonic mm. passion. And she realized that that could only be met by Jesus himself. What happened to her then that kind of created her as the woman? Because there were a lot of nuns, obviously, mm-hmm. and we don't remember them all the way we remember her. What happened with her? I do think that her physical suffering was a big part mm-hmm. of that. So it was a growing spiritual hunger alongside physical suffering in her body. She was pretty uh, hard on herself. Yeah, You read a little bit that asceticism, that is, self-denial, was a regular practice yeah. for monks and nuns. And there were times when she was really harsh on herself through fasting and even what they called flagellation. She would whip herself at times. She learned later on that that's not the way of grace, but she was hungry for more and she was dissatisfied with her own spiritual condition. And much like Luther, Luther right. was pretty miserable too. But she also was physically ill. Physically, that's right. Very deathly ill at times. deathly ill. And in those moments of sickness, she began to understand Scripture, read Scripture. Uh, She read the accounts of other saints. She began to read St. Augustine's uh, Confessions. And I think this was part of her own spiritual awakening. She says something happened to her as she read Augustine's Confessions. It's interesting. Luther had the same thing. Luther was reading Augustine on the book of Romans, what Luther, what Augustine was thinking, and it quickened something. It was a turning point. So here she's reading Augustine and having the same kind of spiritual awakening. So this, you said earlier that the Holy Spirit was sparking things and using these ancient writers, because Augustine was what? Thousands? Would have been 1,200 years before. Before each of them. Hmm. Isn't that so? It yeah. shows how important our Christian posse is. They were reading back to this early church father who was commenting on scripture. That's right. what Augustine spent most of his time doing was reading, translating, commenting on scripture. So she was reading Augustine and had this quick. So she had this quickened awakening. What happened with her and God? 
Well, she was reading about Augustine's conversion, a very personal conversion, where he heard a child singing. He took up, the, the child was singing, take up and read, take up and read. So he finds himself in this garden and there's scripture there. He literally takes it, opens it, and it's a passage from Romans 13 about putting on Christ. Something in that story ignited something inside of her. So she decided, like Augustine, to explore what it means to put on Christ, to enter into this kind of deep union and mystical relationship with Jesus. And at the time, she is in a convent, so she's mm -hmm. spending a great deal of time in prayer, mm -hmm. hearing scripture read. So she's in the great place to be, obviously, yeah. to go in deeper with that. What happened? Boy, I don't, I don't really know. I've re I'd have to reread her life. Yeah. And truthfully, I'm a little rusty on some of those details. But she became, mm. over the process of this exploration and moving in, she became a very spiritually rich person, I think is the way I would describe it. Yeah. Something yeah, happened. Right. In Something her. happened. And I think when you read her writings, what makes her so attractive and compelling is there's a simplicity to it. And she's always referencing nature and saying, hey, look at the silkworm. Look at how this, look at the butterfly. Look at the trees. There's just something really Christ-like. You find Jesus referencing the soil and she was the same way, looking around at nature and seeing the work of God reflected in that. And she began at some point to have some pretty incredible visions and yes. encounters with God, right? Yes, she did. She, while she was sick, she began to have mystical encounters with Jesus. And by that, we mean mystical is a word out of the New Testament. It's, it's rooted in what Paul talks about, the great mystery of Christ in you. So she began to discover personally and experientially, Christ indwells me. I'm his. I belong to him. And so she began to have visions. She, Jesus began to speak to her. And she began to know things, and she was uh, challenged by this. She didn't necessarily want it, but it was coming to her. There's one part, Connie, where she's writing of this in this book that we're going we're gonna to talk about called The Interior Castle. And she had to learn how to discern what was the voice of Jesus? From some other kind of input or voice? That's right. Her own voice, the voice of the enemy. And so she writes very practically what were uh, tests for discerning this. So she wrote tests for discerning God's voice. So you mentioned that she's writing about this in a book called The Interior Castle. The Interior Castle. Which is a description of how we move into relationship, deeper relationship with Jesus. That's right. She said that one day in prayer the Lord was showing her that each Christian is a castle in which Christ himself, the King, dwells. And so she gives this kind of word picture of descending deeper and deeper into yourself. That's the interior That's part the of the castle. That's the interior castle, and there are seven dwelling places. And again, this is a model. She doesn't mean this as some kind of hard, fast rule. It's basically an invitation into ever-deepening intimacy with the indwelling mm. Jesus. That's the whole point of the interior castle. And she says, season by season, we go deeper into that place. And this is a picture that she was putting together even 
I'm sure to describe here's the layers of experience I've had with God exactly. and how, where I've gone with him. That's right. Yeah. And calling people and then teaching not only from scripture, but also her own experience. She would say during this stretch of time here, I experienced this. It was very difficult. What she talks about that's interesting, it's grace from start to finish. So the whole idea of turning inward and finding Christ within is a work of grace. The contrast of somebody having this interior castle work of grace and going back to the era in which she's living, that would not have been a major teaching of the church at the time, would it have been? Yeah, I think this is a topic for debate. There Mm. were some who never lost the teaching and doctrine of grace, for sure. But there were others that did, and it became more works-oriented, and we have scholars looking into this now. But this was what Luther was adamant about, was recovering the idea of salvation by grace through faith. And she, she was living that out. So here was And a, teaching others. And teaching others. And it was based on the grace of God from start to finish. She talks about in these different dwelling places that you move from some great effort in prayer that's energized by grace. It still requires great work and discipline. And she says somewhere along the way, it begins to take on a life of its own. Grace does. And so she found herself being drawn inwardly without a whole lot of effort. It was like Christ drawing her with such a the magnetic pull of love and a force that she almost couldn't help but pray. And that it as you get into these very, very inner rooms, it ends with great intimacy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ra- ravishing. Mm. She has an encounter where the angel of the Lord comes to her and mm. basically pierces her heart with love. And so some of the language is parallel to the Song of Solomon. Wow. And so she finds some of that language helpful and descriptive of the level of intimacy that she's having with, with Jesus. And it's, it's mind-blowing. So she's an extraordinary woman, but also at this time she is a leader mm-hmm. within her convent, and she's beginning also to teach others, right? Yeah, she's te- and she was forced to write some of her things, not mm. so that they could be examined, but because they were so good. So think about it. She's in a man's world, right? 1500s. And yet there were men around her, some who had a problem with her and said, tone it down or you're difficult. You need to, or commit this to writing so we can disseminate it to other people. There's a real tension in that. Real tension. You got Mm. it. So she ended up becoming friends with uh, St. John of the Cross and they founded the discalced Carmelite tradition, which means shoeless. Discalced means shoeless. So a vow of poverty, simplicity, and then I think you read there was what seventeen different convents that over the course of about twenty years that they helped establish. Seventeen spiritual centers. That's a lot of people. That's a you look at that these incredible experiences she's having, obviously in kind of a withdrawn place with God, but then there's this energetic activity that's outward as well. So people call her a contemplative reformer. And I think that's a great description. She 
loved to pray and lived to pray and spent time in solitude, but then she discovered along the way that all of this was given to her so that she could share it with others. And what was the reformer part? Because well, she think, wasn't part of the Protestant Reformation. No, no, no. She was a Catholic. She <clears throat> was committed to reforming her church, the Catholic Church, and there's a Catholic Reformation that's happening. Um, some people alongside call, the alongside Protestant. the Protestant Reformation. And some people call it the Counter-Reformation. It's a Catholic Reformation. So there's a desire on Luther and Calvin's part and folks like Teresa to see the church reformed. And she was part of that. And her way of doing that was within her own Carmelite order. And so that's she wanted to see that reformed. And really, she's kind of establishing little church plants. Right. So what she's doing is just stunning to be deeply prayerful, contemplative, commit these, these teachings to writing and to spiritual direct people, and then at the same time to be launching 17 spiritual right. centers. And she didn't appreciate Luther at all, right? No, no, no. Yeah. She would not have. Now, you mentioned... I wonder if they're having a conversation now. You know, maybe <laughs> they could have sparked things in one another, but at the time, definitely not. Yeah. Luther was um, anathema. He was not a person to be looked upon with fondness if you were Catholic at all. He was disrupting the Catholic Church. So here it is. We're 500 years later. How did mm. you first encounter her? Wow. I am trying to remember. I, I don't know if Madame Guillaume, Right. who's a couple hundred years after her in France, was a gateway to, to uh, Teresa. I am not, I can't mm. remember the first time I got my hands on Teresa's work. I do know in seminary, 25 years ago, I read her life. And I'm not sure how that came to me. It may have been through a church history class. I started reading about her. So I went and bought her life and started reading that. And it spoke to me. And I can remember, Connie, um, she began to hear the voice of Jesus. The Lord mm. was speaking to her, and she had a litmus test. She would say, I could discern this was the voice of Jesus if it left me with a sense of the grandeur and majesty of Jesus, a lingering love for him, and there was something about the voice of Jesus that stuck with her. Oh, like when Jesus yeah. would speak to her, it would reverberate in her heart and in her being. And then she talks about ways to discern, ooh, if this is myself, or could this be the voice of the enemy? So it was very, very practical teaching right. on how to discern the voice of Jesus. And her mind and heart, they were filled with Scripture. She was a woman of the Word. In a world where it was hard to access Scripture. Yeah. Could I just read that yeah. little piece here? There's a, a book called The Reformation Theologians, and she's included in here. And... I just want to read this quickly, if that's all right. As an unlettered woman, that means unable to read Latin, right. which was the church's language. She Teresa, could read, but just not Latin. That's right. She couldn't read Latin. Teresa was subject to the prohibitions against reading scripture in the vernacular or the common language. Such prohibitions emerged with a censure of Bibles throughout Spain in 1554. Which means that nobody could have Bibles in the ordinary language, only Bibles in Latin. That's right. And that was to control the interpretation and understanding. And this was an inquisitional edict that had happened earlier 
1551. So the point is she's living in this era of the Inquisition and a real clamp down on who has access to the Bible. And the priests would help interpret it. It was therefore bolder that we might initially appreciate for Teresa to riddle or fill her prose with implicit and explicit references to scriptural texts. Because then it would have been obvious that this unlettered woman was accessing scripture. Yes. And then peppering her writings Mm. with it. So her writings were shot through with scripture, which is true of all the great spiritual classics. She was reflecting on meta. It was inside of her. She used scripture metaphorically as a form of invitation into an exploration of one's relationship with God. Could you read that part again? Teresa used scripture metaphorically as a form of invitation into an exploration of one's relationship with God. Sounds mm. like what we're doing in all saints. It really does. We've been experiencing Using that. scripture. And then increasingly, Teresa began to see a relationship between the words expressed by Jesus and the word of Christ they manifested. And then this is explained. Consequently, Teresa approached scripture meditatively and sacramentally, seeing scripture as another form of Eucharist or the Lord's Supper to be chewed or considered, contemplated, even savored. So she was taking in scripture as a sacrament through which God came to her. That's right. As a woman in Mm. the 1500s, when access to scripture was controlled and frowned upon. People have pointed out Luther is arguing for the priesthood of all believers. You have direct access to God. Luther was arguing and contending for access to Scripture. All people should be able to read and approach Jesus through the Scripture. She was doing the same thing. With a Catholic woman. That's right. She was saying every Christian is an interior castle. With direct access to God. Christ is in you, the hope Mm. of glory. Now turn inward. And commune with him and get to know him on deeper levels. And then she's sprinkling her writings with scripture. Through which she accessed Christ. That's right. And through which she taught others Mm. and invited them. So she's a reformer. Yeah. Well, and no wonder her writings are reverberated then all this time. What did they strike in you? Why has she been part of your posse all these years? That is such a good question. I... There's something in her writing that is so accessible and so simple and so practical. And her brokenness comes through. She's real and raw. She's not coming from a lofty place. I mean, there's something of Jesus in it. Mm -hmm. I just, I read her and I want to pray. That's what it does. It just makes me say, I want what this woman had. And yes, God was doing unique things in her, but she had an intimacy with Jesus. And there's a reason, Connie, she is one of two women in the entire history of the Catholic Church who's been called a doctor of the church. She and Catherine of Siena, the only two. That's powerful. It is powerful. And what she just said of when I read her, it makes me want to pray. I want to pray. I want to experience the Jesus that she's talking about. And it's just, there's a an infusion of grace that comes. I I read it, I don't feel heavy. I feel the grace of God inviting me into this revelation of... The next layer of that castle. 
and persist at it. Don't give up. Keep going. Mm. This is for the best is for all. What do you think she would say to us hmm. if she could right now? What do you think? Well, I don't know nearly as much about her as you do. But just from this conversation, the first thing that came to mind was, it's hard, but it's worth it. Mm. Wow. That sounds, I think she would give you a high five right now <laughs> for saying that. Yeah, it's hard, but it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And the it being pressing in to prayer and intimacy with God. Yeah. It's hard, but it's worth it. At the end of Interior Castle, she says this, In sum, my sisters, what I conclude with is that we shouldn't build castles in the air. What she's alluding to there is she felt like she was reaching outward for mm, God. And yes, right. God is transcendent, but... She was saying, don't build castles out there, but turn inward. You are a castle. The collective church is, but you individually are. So the Lord doesn't look so much at the greatness of our works as at the love with which they are done. So Teresa of Calcutta, 400 years later, you know, we're more familiar right. with her, her work. She would take up much of her inspiration, Teresa of Avila. So the Lord doesn't look so much at the greatness of our works as at the love with which they are done. And then she goes on to talk about what may seem small is actually really significant, whether it's effort in your spiritual life or prayer or love for other people. She was in love with Jesus. She was a woman who experienced the grace of God and loved Jesus and called him my majesty. So she had a revelation of the kingship of Jesus. And she would just constantly talk about my majesty, our majesty, Jesus great. was majestic intimacy as well. That's, that's a wonderful right. thing. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you for introducing us mm. to one of your posse. It thank makes you. me want to go read her and it mm. kind of makes me say, wouldn't it be great if people said about us when I'm around them, I want to pray more. I want to pray more. <laughs> that would be a great legacy to live. She's in that cloud of witness Hebrews 12 talks about. So she's a sister. We'll get to converse with her one day and in the future, whatever that looks like. But in the meantime, I think her writings can speak to us. She can serve as a spiritual director of sort if we'll read some of her stuff. And a mentor. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brock. Mm, thank we you, Connie. I appreciate it. And this has been a, I think, rich All Saints conversation. We've been delighted to have you with us. And I'll put up a link to the some of her books by her so that if people want to go to our website, they can find more information about her there. And it is allsaints.center. And we'll talk with you again. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Connie.